0: Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past and future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to startup. Our guest today is Ezra Galston founding partner at Starting Line, a seed-stage consumer tech-focused fund based in Chicago. Previously, he was principal at Chicago Ventures. Some of his investments include Cameo, Fly Homes, and Spot Hero. It was really terrific talking with Ezra about the Midwest, managed marketplaces, and the early VC landscape during COVID. Without further ado, here's Ezra. Ezra, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you for uh, having me here, being in the company with some of your former guests like Nikki Quinn, Mike Duboe, Greg Bettinelli. Like, definitely feels like the bouncer made a mistake to let to let me in, but uh, super excited to be here.
0: Not true whatsoever. Thrilled to have you on. Talk to me a little bit about you know how you got started. Like, what initially attracted you to venture capital? I'd been
1: part of a, a few startups. Um, actually, my background was in poker. Played poker for a living for a few years, um, and then got into into startups uh, in the in the poker world. But when I I, when i had some time to kind of reflect on my experience and that was over four or six years or so over a couple of them um i realized that i loved the process of going from kind of like one to ten but not zero to one i found uh you know some people are really attracted to like the idea of formation and just the grind of bringing a product to life i thought that was interesting but i was far more excited by you know, iterating and speaking to customers. And so when I really thought about what I wanted to do with my life and I'd started angel investing, like a lot of folks, you know, being able to, to be a part of a number of businesses and learn from them and, you know, just be really, really hungry about learning about the world. That was just kind of what I wanted to do with my life. So it's been almost a decade now. Um, and then for starting line, your listeners may or may not know this, but we're based in Chicago, which, you know, is different than most of, uh, you know, the guests you have on your show. And, and really, I just wanted to build a world-class firm in, in Chicago. I think that most people look at location outside of the Valley or New York as a liability. And I just kind of wanted to solve for like, how do you turn that from a liability into an asset? So that's really what I've been obsessed with since we started this in 2018, but trying to build a principled, diverse fund from the ground up that really focused on consumer.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny to even call Chicago a secondary market, to be honest with you, because it's such a massive market. Talk to me a little bit about the startup ecosystem. What makes heart? What makes Chicago special? And 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 I guess your initial attraction to Chicago.
1: Yeah. So look, table stakes is that it's a young ecosystem. It has you know about it's probably a decade of really uh, into its you know formation at this point. Ever since kind of the the Groupon uh, the Groupon you know uh, boom in the kind of 2010 time frame. Um, So that puts it, you know, a decade or two behind New York and four or five decades behind the Bay Area right? So it's very, very young. Not to say there wasn't technology here beforehand, but that's kind of the, the boom period for the kind of recent application era. But there are a lot of interesting things going on, meaning you've got more access to industry here, um, historical industry, you know, whether that's, you know, McDonald's with food or Hyatt with hospitality or Sears and Walgreens on the retail side. So there's just a lot of institu- institutional knowledge of building really big category-defining businesses. That's kind of number one. Number two is like when it's come to the to the recent startup world i think it's got a lot of young people with frankly bad weather and so companies like uber lyft instacart all made chicago kind of the second or third market that they went after because it had really compelling consumer dynamics so when you think about starting consumer businesses like what's a great market to test on especially for like a service application kind of business Chicago ended up being a really really interesting market and then you know also some of the access to the schools University of Illinois University of Chicago extraordinary CS and engineering departments and that creates a lot of talent so those are the positives in my mind certainly a lot of work to do but there's a lot a foundation to build upon
0: here. I had on Charles Hudson and and, and Kate McAndrew, who are both fantastic. And what they were saying is how it's fine for a company that maybe is outside of the coast or or in a secondary market or tertiary market to start in a secondary tertiary market, but... When it comes to actually building and scaling, you need to either be if, if it's software, it needs to be either um, on the coast, or there has to be a, a strategy there because of talent. When speaking about the talent that's around Chicago, and, and your view about you know companies that are starting out in, in the Midwest.
1: Look, the the reality on the ground is is that uh, right now in Chicago we've got three publicly traded tech businesses kind of started in the last decade-ish, you know, trading above you know five million five billion dollars of market. Of enterprise value in the public markets, those are uh, you know Grubhub, Paylocity, Go Health, uh, just last week, and we've got uh, Lavongo, which is a ten billion dollar public traded company that has deep uh, Chicago roots, kind of originated here, started here. Its chairman is uh, still here and runs a venture capital firm here. So you know the facts on the ground are you can build a big business in Chicago and that excludes kind of the dozens of you know startups that are still scaling that, that are you know hundreds of millions in revenue here in town. I think the reality, the the, the kernel of truth that, that's being expressed there is that unlike more mature ecosystems, there are just less people here who've made it across the finish line. There are less winners here. There are less people who've seen it from inception to exit on a really really you know big global scale. And so uh, as regards like the, the dynamic flywheel of mentorship and experience that pushes entrepreneurs to think really, really big, reimagine industries, et cetera, I do think that that is lacking here. And that's something that we've tried to do as a fund is import a lot of that institutional knowledge from great people that we know in other markets and say, hey, there's this extraordinary untapped asset here in Chicago. Why don't we import some of your knowledge and help kind of uh, take a lot of these companies and found. To the next level, and and that's something that we've tried to do at at the earliest stages. So again, I think there's a kernel of truth there. I think there are extraordinary people here, but I do think that just the supply of people who are, you know, world class and gone from zero to, you know, massive public company is, is you know, 100x less than in a more mature market. Um, And so those are the headwinds you're fighting against.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I know that you said previously, you, you talk about how you're not as much interested in, in, in the zero to one part, but rather the one to 10. What, how do you think about what that one is and the early stage ecosystem? And- yeah,
1: so we specialize in, you know, what I would consider kind of traditional seed investing. And, you know, that word is always kind of moving around a little bit. You know, for any entrepreneur or founder listening to the, to the podcast, like our average check is kind of like a million dollars into a couple million dollar, sort of seat around i think the things that we look for are we look for early points of validation like that's what we care about meaning if you are a founder your job is to continue validating uh, with increasing urgency elements of your business um, and so depending on the category depending on the opportunity like we care about different levels of validation if it's a market that's coming online in real time and like there's not that many customers yet like the validation we might look for is substantially different but i think one thing that does make us different than than other investors is i try to take like a what i call a topographical approach to investing which is to be really really thoughtful around categories that are chaotic and noisy and, and lots of players already kind of you know in, in, in the mix versus those that are not yet fully baked, like industries that, that aren't fully formed or that are kind of coming online in real time due to behavioral change or technology change or whatever it is. And we tend to get far more excited about the latter um, for a few reasons, um, but principally because like the startup ecosystem world is just so competitive right now that we get really excited by entrepreneurs who are thinking about a market that may not even exist yet, where we could have like some early edge in helping to define it. But anyway, we're getting you know deeper than your question was, but that's how we start to think about things like A, can we map out a whole like markets and find interesting niches that you can start to own on the fringe that you may be able to work more towards the mainstream from? And like, have you started to validate early points of that? And the most interesting discussions we have are when we get to debate, like, Hey, have you really validated this or not? Like, and, and what that looks like. And that's, you know that's always fun.
0: Cool. I know you've written a bunch about marketplaces. What's the difference between like a managed marketplace, and maybe a lightly managed or an unmanaged
1: marketplace? The classic marketplace approach, which was kind of like the Web 1.0 era, or is still you know totally valid today, is just like traditional demand generation marketplace, meaning you have buyers and sellers who you know traditionally. Uh, transacted offline or through brokers and you can cut out the middleman or bring it into the digital mold and they can interact and transact directly you know one against the other an example of that might be kind of like you know an expedia orbits, you know something something like that or booking the, the the kind of next iteration of that was you know marketplaces that had some light Uh, some light management. Um, So whereas, you know, Craigslist is just kind of, you know, an open free-for-all, platforms like eBay or Yelp started to innovate around reviews and ensuring that you know the, the the reviewers were validated and you know proving that you know they had checked in somewhere or etc cetera, etc cetera, right so there's some, or even you know with, with an uber and Airbnb you know providing some level of, of guarantee that if there's any damage to the home it'll be covered or running background checks right so there you're taking it straight from you know a peer-to-peer approach to you as the middleman as the marketplace are now involving yourself in some way and expressing to the customer, like, we vouch for the transaction or we're helping to aid the transaction. The the kind of final iteration, which you're seeing more and more of uh, in a heavy capital environment or whether there's you know, capital uh, free-flowing, um, are models where there is uh A kind of value added intermediary in the middle. So that might be an example like RealReal or StockX, where as opposed to just transacting peer to peer, they're going to ingest that item, they're going to hold that item, they're going to authenticate that item, they're going to refurbish that item, they're going to do a whole lot of process in the middle for you around that item, whether it's a pair of sneakers or, you know, a a purse, whatever it may be, or a bag, (laughs) but they're going to charge you more for it. So the typical structure was that, you know, peer-to-peer marketplace is that kind of 1.0 had a very low take rate, you know, three, five, sometimes 10%. The kind of middle tier had a higher take rate, uh, you know, sometimes it was 10 to 20% because they had to pay for background checks, they had to pay for their insurance policies, whatever it was. And the final tier has the highest take rate because they need the infrastructure to actually process it. The The danger is that in the final tier, the managed marketplaces or full stack, it has different names. Depending on how far you go, you you cease to be a marketplace. And this is an area where some of my thinking has, or some of my understanding frankly has evolved over time but if you go too far into being an intermediary you stop being a marketplace and in some cases just become a retailer right and that's an interesting kind of debate to have as well
0: on the managed marketplace i guess right before they become retail or you know if they do become retail but yes you can charge a very a much higher take rate maybe like a 30 or 40 percent maybe in some places 50 percent take rate but there's so much cost also center, like warehousing costs, maybe, or a cost actually authenticate. And it's a lot harder to start these businesses early on because profitability, it's really hard early on to become profitable. You really have to focus on growth. How are you thinking about all these things? If someone is thinking about starting a managed marketplace?
1: Yeah, really good questions. I'm not sure that we totally know how that story ends yet. What's interesting to note is that you kind of have to start in the way I described it. If certain categories come online, um, or you know, the, the traditional middlemen get, get broken down. What's interesting to note is that you kind of need one of the earlier evolutions, at least from, from what I've seen, and you know all rules are made, made to be broken, but from what I've seen is that you typically need kind of uh, an earlier iteration or evolution to get to a more capital-intensive managed state of, of a marketplace. Um, and what I mean by that is not necessarily that it's impossible, but just that investors are typically looking for a market to be validated before they're willing to get excited By a founder who has a vision of kind of moving the goalposts. So to give you an example, right, let's take food delivery and the food delivery wars as 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 like just a great example, right? The kind of V1 was uh was Grubhub that was a you know really uh uh you know happens to be the the CEO is uh on my board and, and one of our early investors. And that was just kind of one of the first digital marketplaces to really nail like just you know, just being a classic demand generation marketplace for for restaurants and came along DoorDash and Postmates and said, we want to move the goalposts. So whereas Grubhub basically charges a fairly low take rate but they leave most of the fulfillment up to the restaurant, whether that's takeout or, you know, the restaurant supplying delivery. They said, you know, we want to move the goalposts. We want to create a 10x better customer experience, which is guaranteeing them delivery in, you know, 45, 60 minutes, whatever it is, not forcing the restaurant to hire their own delivery workers. So we're going to move the goalposts for the customer. We're going to move the goalposts for the restaurant. But the net effect is we're going to charge additional fees to the customer. We're going to charge a higher take rate to the restaurant, right? And, you know, they they came along and moved the goalposts. Could that have could you know could that have been the first iteration of the of of the food delivery world? I- I don't know, maybe, but but it tends to not or work like that. It historically wasn't, hasn't worked like that. You look at like, you know, Zillow, Open Door, kind of the same thing, right? Zillow was just kind of classic, like connecting home buyers to real estate agents, came along, Open Door and said like, we'll just buy it directly from you, right? Just moving the goalposts really aggressively. So some of that could be timing. Some of it could be that it just, you know, markets have to come online in a kind of systemic way um, or systematic way. And so when it comes to profitability, um, I, again, I just don't know how we, if we know yet, how the story ends? there, there are certainly some public ma- managed marketplaces like Real real and Carvana, Carvana. That the uh, markets really seem to love. It's a twenty-five billion-dollar company, uh, uh, you know, publicly traded at this point. But I think for a lot of the other models, the the jury is still out. If what's clear is that adding all these costs makes a radically better customer experience. Unclear if it makes a radically better business model. But you have some really capable entrepreneurs who feel really good about
0: it. Are there specific categories you're looking at right now, or or, or it could be current uh, portfolio companies that are in that managed marketplace that you think? will will eventually come into play in in certain categories
1: right now in the portfolio not a ton that i would consider really really full stack or or fully managed Um, we do have an investment down in in austin um called uh hitch Uh, it 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 connects you know riders looking to go from one city to another So think kind of classic ride sharing but in between cities as opposed to just you know point to point within the same city and that has interesting mechanics Um, and some of the ability to create stability in those routes to ensure that there's always a car going to dallas or houston whenever you want requires some subsidization right Uh, it would be great if you know you have liquidity from from day one but In a lot of marketplaces, you don't. And in marketplaces, the the thing that matters more than uh, economics or profitability, I mean, those obviously matter, but you don't even have a shot on goal until you have liquidity. And so everything as an entrepreneur that you need to do for a marketplace in the early day is to nurse liquidity in any way you can, whether that's doing things that don't scale or potentially subsidizing one side of the marketplace, uh, if necessary, or (laughs) both sides. But again, those need to be kind of temporary measures, because ideally, you're building a much better product where buyers and sellers just can't kind of imagine in life without you and when you nail that then that's when magic starts to happen
0: why well, don't also talk about a, another trend that we talked in this show a bit i had on rishi garg who talked about he thinks that one of the big opportunities in consumer is curation so much information so many products you can buy on the internet but curation now he thinks is going to be maybe like the next big
1: wave first off funny rishi garg story for you just to tell you how extraordinary of a person he is! I only got to know him fairly recently. We actually met at a conference, and you know, conferences tend to be pretty transactional. It's like, you know, hey, great to meet you, and you know, yeah, what if we stay in touch? And so, you know, he kind of, you know, we sit down with each other for five minutes, ten minutes, and you know, it's a conference, so I just assume that, you know, I mean, I liked him, I would have stayed there for a while, but you know, he's an important guy. I just assume he had better things to do, so I tried to get up, you know, three, four, five times during the conversation, like, okay, this has been great, but you know, I'll let you get back to it. He's like, no. Sit down, like I want to get to know you, like you know this this is, you know, I actually want to figure out who you are, right? I think that that is the type of conversation that, uh, you know, in a world of really busy investors and entrepreneurs, like it's just refreshing when you meet someone who's like, no, sit down, shut up, like I want to get to know who you really are, right? And that was kind of wonderful. Um, so do I agree with Rishi? Yeah, you know, we've been chatting about this a fair amount internally, um, and. Haley on my team actually probably has better thoughts than than I do on this. She was fairly early at Trunk Club uh, that was acquired by Nordstrom and then at kind of a, a similar model for, for kids as well. But yeah, I, I think the really interesting thing is that almost uh, you know, the vast majority of commerce businesses that we use on a daily basis were not... We're not purpose-built for mobile. And as the number of SKUs has, you know, you know, <laughs> that is now available to us is in the millions, billions, whatever it may be, yet we use mobile for the vast majority of, of our kind of uh, purchasing, whether that's impulse or even need. Most of those platforms are not built, are not, you know, built kind of first principles for for mobile, Um, whereas you see some of the Chinese businesses, whether it's a Pindu Duo or or a few others, they kind of take a mobile first approach, having enormous success. Even really amazing commerce businesses in the U.S., like Stitch Fix, were not built for mobile. I mean, you know, some of the personalization they do was kind of like, the The best you could have done at the time, given the reality uh, on the ground, that you just don't know that much about people, and you need to ask them to take a quiz to even get in the door. Now that we have so much information that should be readily available through just our habits on mobile, almost like TikTok is able to to you know to to train its algorithm very quickly about what you like, that's certainly going to be a new wave of commerce. And and we've started to get pitched on businesses like this, um, but certainly things were certainly opportunities we're really interested in. Absolutely.
0: We actually didn't really talk with Rishi about the difference between like web versus now mobile in terms of curation. So that's, uh, that's awesome.
1: It's interesting. Meaning having, you know, skew overload on the web is very different than with, you know, mobile, right? You know, skew overload on the web is you can, you know, have, you know, on Amazon four rows by, you know, four by four in terms of a kind of a, you know, a thumbnail. Um, experience. On mobile, that's just like you're dead, right? And so what are the what are the solutions for that? It's a really interesting approach to take. I actually I have a angel investment here in Chicago in a business called Chowbus, and they've taken this approach to food. They don't open with they don't open with the restaurant. They don't launch you with the restaurant. They launch you with the dish. Um, and they take a very dish centric apo- approach approach to, to ordering. And I think you're gonna see a lot more of that. That's that's really interesting. I,
0: your focus is it's consumer technology for the 99%, what does that mean to you?
1: When I, when I spoke about kind of reframing being in Chicago, uh, moving it from a liability to an asset, one of the things I thought a lot about was we're actually closer to like the real, you know, average middle American than most firms in San Francisco, New York, LA are. And certainly there is a lot of discussion in, in uh today's political environment about kind of the 99% and what you know what you know the, the diversity of america and what you know broad america looks like and so we tried to frame that as an asset and that's the customer that we really care about and what it means is that the majority of investments we make try to answer the following question, basically, like, is this a product, service, experience, whatever, that creates greater opportunity or accessibility for normal people? And some of that can be just straight, you know, buying products. Some of it can be a little bit on the labor side, right? Giving people new opportunities to monetize their time, their passions, things like that. Um. So to give you a few examples, like, from the early portfolio, because we're only, you know, two-ish years into this fund, like, you know, Cameo, um, which is a marketplace that connects, uh, you know uh, uh, fans with celebrities for personalized messages like that was actually the first investment out of the out of our fund and and it's also like that creates that 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 enables an opportunity for real people to interact with their heroes in a way that was previously unprecedented and sometimes it's Twenty bucks, and sometimes it's hundred bucks, and sometimes it's five hundred bucks. And if it's too much, like you know, you, you can't do it, but you wouldn't have had accessibility anyway. So for a lot of people to have accessibility to a person on their favorite sports team for a hundred dollars less than that, I mean, that's just kind of a game-changing opportunity you know opportunity. Um, we made a an investment in direct to consumer. Cookware business called Made in Cookware, and they sell pots and pans direct to consumer. And it sounds, you know, oh, that's sort of interesting, except that what they did, what they've done is they've recreated the quality of all clad and they can sell it to you at a massive discount by cutting out all the middlemen. And the way they prove it to you is that the best chefs in the world, whether that's Grant Ackett's at, at Alinea or Tom Collegio from Tom Chef or uh eric repair from laverna Dam, like they're all using the stuff in their restaurants um and so you know for what would other what what you would just you know if you went on amazon and typed in cookware set and bought it for basically that same price you can have the best cookware uh that like the best chefs in the world are using and that again that's accessibility that previously would have cost you i don't know a couple thousand dollars to get in the game and now it's a couple hundred dollars right and in a you know Shelter and home environment. All of a sudden, that's far more attractive. Uh, so that business is doing nicely. But you know, that's kind of the way we we see the world, and you know, the, the majority of our investments kind of follow those themes.
0: Thank you so much for the, for those examples. What's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital?
1: I don't have great answers for you here. I wish there, I wish it weren't so competitive. Um, I wish the feedback loops were were a lot shorter. Um, you know, the competitive side is you know, just my own selfishness, but when it comes to the feedback loops, I think it's, you know, I, I tell people all the time, having, you know, grown up in this industry from intern to associate, senior associate to principal to spinning out, starting my own firm, it is not an easy industry for, for young people. Um, it's not an easy industry because, uh, A, Every dollar you earn is coming out of someone else's pocket, right? To some degree, right? When it comes to management fees and stuff like that. So you're kind of constant and carry, frankly. So you're kind of constantly fighting a, a battle in that sense. And B, the feedback loops are, are so long. So it's hard to know if, if you're good or not. I've been in this business just under a decade now and, you know, don't really know if I'm good or not. Like all indications point towards, you know, things going well, but I struggle with a lot of insecurity because it's just, it's hard to know, um, and you'll have businesses that are, you know, flying, and then, you know, something might happen like a pandemic, and they kind of get, you know, shattered overnight. And did you, you know, my, my again, my background is in poker, so uh we used to joke better lucky than good but in reality what we cared about is did i make the right decisions did i get my money in with a lot of expected value um and in this industry it's not always so quantitative right a lot of the reality is quality. it's hard to know if you got your money in good sometimes and so that is that is the part of it that i struggle with there's obviously no answer to that other than starting a you know a fantasy venture capital portfolio to uh, to quote turner novak you know in your, you know, teens or elementary school years. Like I don't know any other better solution by the time you're 25, you've got 20 years of track record. But you know, that is certainly, that's certainly something that I struggle with on a daily basis.
0: I mean, looking at your, your, your portfolio, I think you're, you're doing extremely well.
1: I appreciate that, but we just don't know.
0: Why don't also, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought up COVID. What have been some of the effects for you uh, personally, professionally uh, due to COVID?
1: For one, it's, just uh, I don't know, imbued me with a sense of awe that any entrepreneur is kind of persevering through this. Um, meaning, I've got three little kids at home, um, and we have a team of four here at Starting Line that you know just got talk on a daily basis-ish or so, and you know, trying to manage just you know that team has been a massive struggle with you know three little kids at home. I don't know how. Some of the founders I work with are, are managing dozens, hundreds, et cetera. It, it just seems, you know, like a really complicated task. But the flip side is that I think we can all agree that, you know, in this world and in the same way that, you know, we know that you can't build muscles unless you go to the gym and, and really strain your your body and, and feel some pain, right, that in order to grow often requires some, some pain. And so my, my hope is that through all this. All of us are, are growing a little bit in different ways, whether that's personally, professionally. So it has certainly been a challenge, uh, personally, professionally. It's just been fascinating. You know, again, I, we, we try to take a pretty balanced, uh, unemotional approach to everything. It's pretty hard, though, in the current world, to separate the the sensitivity you feel for a, a whole bunch of people, including many friends, um, and colleagues, from uh, just with everything going on. So you know, it's pretty hard to stay completely just like you know, data focused and and unemotional, but certainly we're working towards that. The the net effect on the fund has been, I actually think it's I think it's pretty intriguing to see what's happened to the early stage environment. So we're recording this kind of mid to late June. I, can't, I don't I don't know the dates anymore, it all blurs together. The early stage market, from my perspective, is flying right now. Deals are flying and getting done at potentially even like pre-pandemic speeds. And the only thing I can think of is that you've basically, um, you know, for a lot of investors that want entrepreneurs to be in market, iterating, building, you know, working really, really fast, you've taken a whole bunch of industries offline, hospitality, entertainment, sports, right, things like that. And so you've reduced the supply of fundable opportunities materially, um, yet you've still got the same number of venture capital firms in market. And so it feels like potentially things have even gotten more competitive for some of the opportunities that are out there right now. Um, So it's a really interesting dynamic. We're kind of evaluating it in real time, but um, you know, it's allowed us to really focus on some of the things that we really care about. Like, is is this an opportunity that, you know, helps, uh, it could potentially help real people. Anyway, it, it's it's a really interesting time to be an investor.
0: It's really interesting, giving us a little bit of like a macro analysis. And How many deals have you done so far s- since COVID? Uh,
1: we've done two uh, and have an, uh, an offer in on a third. But, you know, we, we, we've spoken to companies that, you know, uh, just in the last few weeks, have gotten three, four, five term sheets in in a matter of a day or two from really disparate firms. It's not like there was just a bidding war and you know one kind of circle of investors. You know, New York, L.A., S.F. Like you know, just really it it, it seems like. You know, when, when people fall in love with I mean, I, 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 my professional opinion, I'm certainly open to others, to other perspectives and data points, is that things are moving really fast out here right
0: now. That's interesting. Are you finding it harder to, and I've had mixed responses from this question. Are you finding it harder to establish conviction meeting with entrepreneurs remotely?
1: Uh, no, I don't think so. I got a really good tip from a friend of mine, uh, Jonathan Trias, who runs Ludlow Ventures, that take the first interaction to just get to know the person. Like, it's not a pitch. Uh, It's not about the business. It's about the person. Um, And we've tried to internalize that feedback. And basically, you know, a lot of founders just want to get right into it. And like, hey, I'm building this incredible business. Here's what you need to know. And sometimes the, you know, the timelines of the process are, are so truncated that you don't really have a choice. But in general, we're trying to do like, we just want to get to know you. Let's spend a half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it is, just building relationships, seeing if we kind of fall in love a little bit. And if like our values are really aligned and then let's go deeper after that. Cause we wouldn't even be talking. If we weren't intrigued by the category or kind of opportunity you're building into. So that's been a really helpful reframe for everything going on. I think it's helped us to, um, be a bit more high conviction when it comes to the opportunities that that we see out there.
0: No, that's awesome. I, I, do you feel like that right now has uh, uh, has been like accelerated because right now if things are just moving so fast? If- yeah,
1: I think um, I think we've you know, moved faster than we historically do on certain processes. Um, but there are a few others where, you know, um, basically, you know, told my team, like, let's, you know, this is moving too fast. Like let's slow this down. And if we can't have a really, really thoughtful approach to it, then we shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Um, so, you know, it works, works both ways.
0: Oh, cool. I, I appreciate that. So what is, what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: You know, I've always been a dreamer. I think it's why I get so, I don't know, taken by kind of narrative-driven, like, dreamer founders but i think part of what got me there were some of the childhood books that i fell in love with so you know first and foremost is like the little prince that i've read a hundred times and it's not a surprise to me that one of my favorite blog posts ever is chris dixon's like the next great thing will start out looking like a toy like i think you know we've got emoji all over our website like i think being playful and childlike is is a great way to build culture and to build kind of outlier results because if you're just you know kind of thinking about things incrementally, it's hard to drive those massive outcomes. So that's kind of, and then on the professional side, I've actually just been rereading Essentialism, which is a book by Greg McKeon, all about saying no. And the, you know, uh, in a time-constrained p- pandemic world, where my kids are uh, home a lot more and I'm home a lot more, and the hours of the day that you know I just have 12 hours working a day or you know four hours alone on a flight, and like those just don't exist anymore. The ability to to say no and prioritize has never been so important. So I've been rereading that book, and it's helping me realize how reactive I've been in certain senses and how proactive I've been. I I, I say this to my team all the time, but like the the way to outperform and venture is to think from a proactive perspective, not a reactive perspective. And that's something we try to internalize every day.
0: I love that. I will certainly have to check out Essentialism. That's, that sounds really interesting.
1: Uh, it was given to me when I went through a fellowship called the Kaufman Fellows. And I've read it uh, two times before now, but it's been probably five years. And it is super refreshing. So I encourage everybody to, to pick up a copy.
0: What's your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it?
1: Yeah, so it's actually not public, uh, but I did text the founder last night. He gave me permission to, to say it on here, figuring you might ask a question of that vein. It's a company called, a company called Schoolhouse, and it's very much... So we didn't go into it with a uh, focus on the pandemic, um, but that certainly creates tailwinds. It is a marketplace created uh, uh, um connecting parents with teachers to form micro schools. We've kind of been obsessed about the opportunities in between traditional schooling and homeschooling. I think homeschooling is fascinating, uh, and I did it for the last four months, but uh, it was, uh, not only was it difficult, but I don't know if every parent, I certainly am not cut out to be an educator. At the same time, there are certain elements of, of traditional schools that May not be appealing to, to some parents or parents may want to you know in the same way that almost element uh, every element of our lives is becoming more modular and a la carte uh, parents may want to have more influence over the type of education their, their children get on this at, at the same time you know it, it's it's been hard to have a conversation about teachers over the last several decades without asking like why are they so underpaid right why is arguably the most important profession in the country like? paid 30 40 50 like in a really high you know income uh county 60k a year kind of deal um and so this is a marketplace that solves that by going direct to teacher they can actually get paid substantially more um and parents can help kind of form the the types of education that they're really really interested in so when it comes to like real people i got excited by like you know what if a whole bunch of teachers could could double their earnings like a what would that do to their morale but also how many really amazing educators might that bring off the sidelines who you know just it wasn't worth it or they went into a different profession but really love teaching and now it's economically viable so there are certain really interesting mechanic mechanics about this it's super super early um, but obviously they uh, there is a lot of demand for their product right now because every parent in the country is trying to figure out kind of schooling in a very uncertain arena and you know this is one option of many that are emerging but it's certainly an attractive one
0: absolutely well that's i mean that's really interesting and i completely agree with you about you know teachers being underpaid and i think that everyone's had a bit of a wake-up call now with uh with covid on that what's one company on your anti-portfolio you had the opportunity to invest in didn't and in retrospect hey i i, I wish i did invest in that
1: company i actually uh, there are a whole I, i've uh, like everybody else i've you know passed on a bunch of companies that are unicorns or or bigger, but there's actually one here in Chicago that, uh, every time that like, I don't know. Every time their name comes up, I just kind of get angry at myself because I, I should have just—we should have just written the check. Um, and it's a company called The Mom Project, and they actually just recently closed a 25 or 30 million dollar Series B. You know, again, still a relatively early stage business, but it's a business that connects moms uh, with employers who had typically taken some time off for maternity leave, and so the—it's often not easy to go back to your existing job, or if you're out of the workforce for several years, you know, to to to, to kind of find a way back in can be complex. Um, and so they. Help uh, enable those transitions. They also have maternity ship programs, which are really, really cool. And you know, just looking back on it, it had all the hallmarks of being a uh, like just a great marketplace with good liquidity and a really reimagined uh, experience, both for the sellers, meaning the enterprises, and and the buyers, or I guess depending on how you frame it, which would be the the moms. And it's it's led by a really remarkable team here in town in Chicago, and it's just a great business and. Um, initialized and grow tech did a series a and and uh, I, I know you know a couple of those investors really well and you know it's just one of those where anytime I speak to someone who's like yeah and it's doing really you know it's you know, a unicorn you pass on and you don't really talk to the founder for the last five years yeah it's one thing but when you your friends are constantly ragging you on how well a business is doing and I have friends who are board members over there it's uh yeah whatever I, I try not to miss any in my home court here in Chicago um, and that's a business that I've, I've, you know, come to love over, over time.
0: That makes a lot of sense. On a final note, what's one piece of advice that you have for consumer tech founders?
1: I'm one data point of many, you know, don't take my feedback to be, uh, you know, screed. But what I care about is founders who just have a really interesting, unique and high conviction perspective on the world. Um, and sometimes it's that, you know, the world shouldn't change all that much, but like this, you know, this area of it is super broken. And sometimes it's, you know, they they had a vision of something crazy and were able to work backwards for all the kind of incremental steps to build up to the crazy. But what I fall in love with are people who have really strong opinions. And like I said, I'm a dreamer. So I fall in love with people who are kind of big dreamers themselves. Um, but again, I'm one data point. Every firm is different. There's multiple investors here at starting line. Um, so, you know, Uh, The biggest piece of advice is probably don't change who you are. Like you have to be authentic to who you are. There are thousands of investors out there. um, And in some respects, it's kind of a top of funnel game to to find the people that you kind of match values and uh, with the most.
0: No, I love that. I love that. I think that's a great, really, really great piece of advice. Well, Ezra, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time.
1: No, thank you. This is a dream come true, especially like I said, it's a uh, remarkable list of people. (laughs) No, it is, man. And uh, yeah, I look forward to staying in touch and seeing you do great, amazing things with the podcast and beyond.
0: And there you have it. It was really great chatting with Ezra and learning about Chicago, how he thinks about managed versus lightly managed marketplaces and his process when meeting founders. I highly recommend following Ezra on Twitter at Ezra Mogee, E-Z-R-A-M-O-G-E-E. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.